Welcome to Destination Murder, the true crime podcast. Each week, the hosts, that's us, BFS Megan and Tegan, cover stories from a new part of the world. Get ready to combat your travel bug and feed your true crime obsession. Hello, Tegan. Hey, Megan. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. I think we uh, are both in a little bit of a different situation. We've both built little forts for ourselves so that we can get better audio. But um, yeah, I'm going good. I'm excited for episode two. I've been waiting all week. I've been dying to tell someone about this case because I have put myself into a huge rabbit hole my my story was up to like 15 pages and I was like "Mm, better cut that down so it's a lot 15 pages is so much we'd be here for like six hours (laughs) it's so there's a lot of detail to this I'm not going to get into everything because there's just too much and there's too many little rabbit holes to go down through this entire story um but it's gonna be good yeah so before we get started we just wanted to say thank you to everyone who listened last episode we got so many lovely messages from people and great comments and great feedback so we are so excited that everyone liked the first one i mean i hope everyone everyone who messaged us did (laughs) yeah i i mean Hopefully no one lied to us and we're like, yeah, you did a really good job. But no, I got tons of um, positive feedback. So I'm really happy that everyone's liking it. And I'm so excited to see where this takes us. And hopefully we can just keep growing the community of people listening to us. So yeah, share with your friends if you want to. We'd love it. And even if you don't want to, share it. <laughs> Please. <laughs> we're begging you (laughs) but yeah thanks thank you to everyone so much we have listeners from around the world tegan (laughs) that's so crazy to me not not really completely around the world but you know like more than just canada yeah well a couple of my cousins listened in australia um i think you've got some friends in amsterdam that listened and yeah, there was uh, five listens on Spotify from the Netherlands, so shout out Ooh. to the five Dutchies who listened. <laughs> we appreciate you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Would you like to hop on in? I'm really excited to hear this after you texting me all week teasing it. So okay, take it away. So I am doing the... Amia bombing and the death of Alberto Nisman. Have you heard of this one? No. This is Argentina, right? This is Argentina, correct. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Alberto, and then we're going to get into the uh, Amia bombing, and then we'll jump back into Alberto. But what I would like to say beforehand is that I am terrible with names and places. I'm trying my best, (laughs) but if I butcher these names, I apologize. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into it. Alberto Nisman was born to a middle-class Jewish family in Buenos Aires. He started his career as a prosecutor in Moron 
Buenos Aires, and he mar- was married to Judge Sandra Arroyo Salgadon. He had two daughters. Uh, he was a ab- non-observant Jew, and he graduated uni- from the University of Buenos Aires. He served as a law clerk at the National Tribunal Courthouse and was later appointed to prosecutor of the suburban Marone. In 2004, Nisman took over the investigation of the AMIA bombing case that had been plagued by mismanagement and corruption. He pursued the case for the next 11 years in an effort to get to the bottom of the deadly attack. Nisman constantly received death threats against himself and his children. So this seems like it was a big thing in Argentina and no one knew who did it? Yeah, it's a... It's a really big deal. Okay. Okay. So, on July 18th, 1994, a suicide bomber drove a Renault traffic van bomb loaded with about 275 kilograms, which is about 606 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer and a fuel oil explosive mixture into the Jewish community center located in a densely constructed commercial area of Buenos Aires. The exterior walls of the five-story building were brick, which supported the floor slabs. The air blast from the bomb totally destroyed the exposed load-bearing walls, which in turn led to failure of the floor slabs. Um, So basically, the entire building collapsed. Oh, dear. Yeah. The bombing was Argentina's deadliest terrorist, terrorist attack to date. Argentina is home to a huge Jewish community of about 230,000. It's the largest Jewish community in Latin America and the sixth largest in the world outside of Israel. Interesting. So this is in the 80s, did you say? 94. Oh, 94. Okay. Um, It killed 84 people and injured countless others. Oh, wow. In the days following the bombing, Israel sent Mossad agents to Argentina to investigate. The Israeli police sent a team of four forensic scientists to assist with the building of anti-mortem files, which means before-death files, and victim identification. Argentina um, closed its borders after the attack, fearing more terrorists would enter, And they thought it was possible that the bombers entered Argentina through the triple frontier, which is where the borders of Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay meet. Right. There's a big waterfall there. Apparently, it's really beautiful. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I think so. I should have looked at a map. (laughs) Um, Over the years, the case had been riddled with accusations of cover-ups. Federal Judge Juan Jose Galeano and followed investigations concerning local connections, which included members of the Buenos Aires Provincial Police. He quickly arrested Carlos Teledin, alleged to have provided the van used in the bombing, and some 20 officers. A video broadcast on Argentine TV showed Galeano offering Teledin $400,000 in return for evidence, which led to Galliano's removal from the case in 2003 and his, his impeachment in August of 2005. So right from the get-go, we're not off to a very um, great judicial system. Yeah. Oh, no. So he was pretty much bribing this guy for any evidence. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, Judge Galliano also issued warrants for the arrest of 12 Iranians, including Haid 
Sol Impor, Iran's ambassador to Argentina. And Sol Impor was arrested in the UK on the 21st of August in 2003 at the request of Argentinian authorities. He was later released because, according to the UK, there was not enough evidence presented to make a prima facie case for the extradition um, to proceed. Judge Galliano also interviewed Abul Hassim Masabi as alleged former Iranian intelligence officer who reportedly said a former Argentine president accepted a $10 million payment from Tehran to block the investigation. Is this just all alleged or was this proven? Yeah. Okay. He claims, so the former president, Carlos Menemen, denied the claims but admitted to having a secret Swiss bank account following the report in the New York Times. It did have $10 million in it. Yeah, if you have a Swiss bank account and you've never been to Switzerland, it's a little bit fishy. Yeah, right? Menem claimed in 2004 that the attack had been related to his support with the U.S. during the first Gulf War and his first visit to Israel during his mandate. Hassim Masabi claimed to the Argentine court that Iran had planned the bombing, thinking that the center was a base for Israeli Secret Service. Oh, interesting. Right? On September 2nd, 2004, all suspects in the local connections of the AMIA case were found to not be guilty. Five people, four of which were police officers, were acquitted because of lack of evidence. But it's interesting that if they suspect Iranian officials had to do with this, that it's just weird that if Iran and Israel are close in geography, they would do this big thing in Argentina. Which is so far yeah, away from both of them. that's so far away from them. Yeah, I know. It's weird, right? Well, it's weird because it's got like a little bit of like, well, they thought that it was a secret um, intelligence office, which is like, why would you need to destroy that? But also at the same time, it's about Iran and Argentina with a, a, a nuclear thing. Oh. And then Israel is kind of just brought into it because it's a Jewish community center that was blown up. Interesting. So it's a lot of international relations and politics and messy in that way as well. Mm -hmm. This is so confusing. (laughs) I know. Um, On August 3rd, 2005, Judge Galliano's impeachment was successful and he was formally removed from his post as federal judge for serious irregularities and his mishandling uh, of the investigation. Okay, so the Israeli diplomatic source who read the final report by the Secretaria de Intelligencia, the, also known as SIDE, so I'm just going to say SIDE from now on, um, on the attack said, in 2003, the attack was a suicide bombing carried out by Ibrahim Hussein Barrow, a 21-year-old Hezbollah operative who had been honored with a plaque in southern Lebanon for his matrodome on July 18th, 1994, which is the same date as the bombing. The investigation was carried out jointly with the FBI. So now the, the U.S. is involved. Oh, lovely. Hussein had been identified by FBI and Argentine intelligence and cooperated by at least three witnesses. 
According to official Argentine government prosecutor Alberto Nisman, Hussein's two U.S.-based brothers had testified that he had joined the radical Shia militant group Hezbollah and said that the brothers' testimony was substantial, rich in detail, and showed that he was the one who was killed. However, a BBC correspondent reported that independent investigations were skeptical, and they pointed out that it was repeated incompetence and deception of the official investigation. No proper autopsy or DNA tests were done. Okay, and here's the part that just, like, blows my mind. The police had also simply dumped a head, thought to be that of the bombers, into a garbage bin. What? <laughs> they were like, huh, don't need that, and just threw it away. What? What the heck? <laughs> why would you do that? That makes sense why there were, like, four police officers on trial for the bombing, if they just discarded yeah. that massive piece of evidence. Also, how disrespectful to the person. I know, like, even if that wasn't the bomber, if that was someone who died in the explosion, like... That's terrible. What the hell? I know. Like, it literally blows my mind that that was even something that was like, yep, that's the right thing to do. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, in 2005, Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio who would later become Pope Francis, was one of the first public personalities to sign a petition for the justice of the Amia bombing case. He was one of the signatures on the document called 85 Victims, 85 Signatures, as part of the bombing's 11th anniversary. So the Pope's involved now. Well, not the Pope <laughs> yet, but the pre-Pope is the pre-Pope. Like, it's just like, this is so worldly. I really had just, like, decided to travel uh, all over the world with this case instead of just sticking to Argentina. Yeah, there are so many different actors in this. Yeah. So, on October 25th, 2006, Argentine prosecutor Alberto Nisbon and Marcello Martinez Burgos formally accused the government of Iran of directing the bombing and the Hezbollah militia of carrying it out. They had indicated several senior Iranian officials, including Hashimi Rafsanjiani, Ahmed Bahidi, Imad Magnahai. According to the prosecution's claims, <laughs> great job. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really struggling with this. Um, according to the prosecution's claims, Argentina had been targeted by Iran after Buenos Aires decided to suspend its nuclear technology transfer contract to Tehran. This has been disputed, though, because the contract was never terminated and Iran and Argentina were in negotiations of restoring the agreements from early 1992 until 1994 when the bombing occurred. So it's like, oh, they might have done it because of this reason, but that reason wasn't even a reason because it didn't happen? Yeah, I don't, like, it's just so confusing. Okay, so in 2007, several of the charged were placed on Interpol's most wanted list. However, Interpol's bylaws prevented listing top officials such as Rafsan Ja'ani. As of 2017, the charged suspects who are still alive remain fugitives. So then I was like, who are still alive? Have to look into that. So... So Imad Magnahai, dead assassination. Oh, Hashimi 
Rafsan Ja'ani. He was 82 when he died of a heart attack in a pool. Okay. Ahmed Bahandi is still alive. And Imad Magnahai is also dead assassination. Oh, man. So out of the four, only one is still alive. And two were assassinated. And two were assassinated. And one, I mean, dying of a heart attack in a pool, that kind of seems a little bit suspicious to me, but he was also 82. So Yeah, you should talk to my sisters who are all lifeguards. I think they would say that that is a very common occurrence. Oh, okay. I was like, in a pool, suspicious. <laughs> okay, so... Nisman asked in 2008 for the detention of former President Carlos Menem and Judge Juan Jose Galliano. On March 31st, 2012, Menem was ordered to stand trial for obstruction of justice on the probe of the AMIA bombing. Menem was accused of helping cover up the tracks of, of local accomplices of the attackers. Nisman accused President... <laughs> so... <laughs> He kind of was just like over 11 years. I mean, it's probably very difficult because you just become so focused on it and start creating all of these, you know, probabilities of what it could be. And it just kind of seemed a little bit like he was just like blindly shooting in the dark of like, (laughs) okay, that didn't work. Who's next? Who am I going to blame for this? Just like, oh, the custodian (laughs) was there that day. So I'm going to look into him. Yeah, because he's, like, constantly just, like, accusing everyone. It all kind of ties together a little bit, but at the same time, it's like, what? So is the guy who's just accusing everyone, is this the main guy that we're thinking we're going to talk about? Yeah. There are so many different names. I have no, (laughs) I can't even remember them all. I know. I know. It's a lot. Um, So Nisman accused President Christina Kirchner, Foreign Minister Hector Timmerman, and other politicians of covering up Iran's suspects in the case. The report was largely based on wiretaps and reports of close allies of Kirchner's alleged to be clearly acting in orders of her and others, including Mohsin Rabani, former cultural attache of Iran's embassy in Buenos Aires. So the accusation was also based on his stated belief that the administration had petitioned Interpol to lift the red notices against numerous Iranians during negotiations. The Secretary General of Interpol at the time noted on January 15th, 2015, that no such requests had been made. So, like, I don't know where he's getting this information from. So now he's blaming Interpol as having some kind of, like, part in this. No, he's not blaming Interpol. Poll. He's blaming the current president of Argentina for asking Interpol to remove the red or the red notices against all of the Iranians that he accuse is accusing. Okay. But Interpol says that they were never asked to do that. Okay. So now we're going back to focus on Nisman. So On January 18th, 2015, Nisman was found dead in his home in Buenos Aires. Hours before, he was due to explain his allegations to the Argentine parliament. A gun and a spent shell casing were found next to the body. Allies of Fernandez suggested Nisman took his own life because he couldn't back up his allegations. 
many other Argentinians insisted that he had been murdered. It triggered an anti-government protest ahead of the 2015 presidential election. Fernandez had also insistently denied any wrongdoing and said her government had no role in Nisman's death. The initial police reports and autopsies concluded that there was no sign of anyone else present in the home when he died, and the national forensic team said that there was no concrete evidence of a homicide and concluded that the lawyer had shot himself in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. It's never that simple, is it, Tegan? No, it's not. <laughs> oh, God. The look on your face. Because it's like like all these other rabbit holes that like we're now going to go down. Like This is just as messy as the trying to figure out who did the AMIA bombings. Oh, dear. So a federal prosecutor, Eduardo Tiano, said that Nisman's death was the most complicated criminal <laughs> case that he had ever investigated. Oh, my goodness. Tiano took over the stalled case from another judge in 2016 following a Supreme Court order. He requested a multidisciplinary border police team take a fresh look at the investigation as the case had been highly questioned for mishandling of evidence and other irregularities. So it's just more messiness. Tiano said that the agency whose main role was to guard the borders and fight drug trafficking was chosen because they hadn't been involved in the case earlier. So it was kind of like a clean slate and no bias. Yeah, you could come in with fresh eyes. Yeah, exactly. The border police reported that Nisbin was beaten by two people who had drugged him and placed him in front of his bathtub, while one of the attackers held him under the armpits like a hug, and the other placed a gun to his head and then shot him. He was murdered, they think, at 2.46 on Sunday. Okay, so the new person who is coming in to look at this case thinks there actually is evidence or has found some sort of evidence that there actually was someone in the house other than him? Yeah, at least three other people. Oh, whoa. It goes all the way to the top, Tegan. It's a cover-up. I know. (laughs) So, the investigation listed key evidence that wasn't mentioned in previous reports, like Nisman's nasal septum was broken. He had suffered multiple blows to his hips and other areas, and ketamine was found in his body. Okay. Yeah, right? The new report concludes that the attackers tried to stage the suicide and notes that other experts throughout the series of investigations never found any traces of gunpowder on Nisman's hands. Even I know that. Come on. You gotta have gunpowder on your hands. What they were saying was... um, why it was a suicide and there was no gunpowder on his hands was because the gun was so small that that type of gun doesn't normally have gunpowder blow off, I guess. I see. Was it like one of those cute little handgun or <laughs> hand purse guns <laughs> that like um like 1960s spy women kept like in their <laughs> boot or in their purse? Yeah. <laughs> so I imagine it being like completely red. Yeah. <laughs> and it has like a lipstick thing on the top. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, who? Me? No. I could never. (laughs) Um, I mean, you could look it up because I can tell you what type of gun it is. Maybe it is uh, a little tiny baby one. But um, the fatal shot was fired from a twenty-two caliber Bursa gun that had been loaned to Nisman by his aide, Diego Lego Marcino, 
a computer technician who said the prosecutor had asked for the weapon because he had feared for his daughter and his own lives, which makes sense because he did get multiple death threats. Yeah, because he had accused so many people of doing this bombing. <laughs> he <laughs> accused practically everyone in Argentina and Iran. Yeah. <laughs> He's like Oprah, but like not. He's like, and you get a arrest warrant, and you get an arrest warrant, and you get an arrest warrant. Okay, so now the guy who loaned the gun to him, his defense team is now deciding to find evidence to try and clear him of being involved. Um, And the defense for this guy says that Nisman shot himself standing in front of the mirror and then fell back hitting his head. And it says that there is no proof that Nisman was under any effects of ketamine and argues that he had suffered the injuries on his hip and ankle several hours before his death. The lesion on his bottom lip could have happened when the body was being transported, which is like, what? And the death says it could have been taken place between 8 a.m. and noon, several hours later than the estimated border police report. Okay, so the computer technician guy is now a suspect. Yeah. He's like, no, no, we're we're just going to do a defense and we're just not going to go by anything that the investigators have found. We're going to make up our own timeline. Yeah. So now there's a third storyline of how his death has occurred. But though a major challenge for the investigation was contamination of the crime scene, more than 60 people walked into Nisman's apartment for several hours after the body was found by his mother and security guards. That sounds like John Benet Ramsey. Yeah, right? Like everyone was in and out of the house like a hundred times before they found her. Yeah. It's just like, hmm, let's see what things we can trample on to get rid of. Yeah, there's a case that I was listening to on a podcast years ago, but it was like an old timey case. And so all of the town came to like look at the dead bodies in the house. <laughs> and they're like, wow, a first murder. So like everyone in the town came and walked through the house. Was this the one where they had like a raisin cake or something out on the table and people were taking raisins off of the cake? Yes. <laughs> yes, it was that one. I can't remember what the name of the the case was, but I just remember that, like, people have, like, raisins from this. Yeah, they were taking them as, like, a souvenir. That is so weird. I know. People are very weird. (laughs) Humans are weird. (laughs) Carry on. (laughs) Okay, so, in addition, Nisman's cell phone and computer were tampered with to delete any traces of information and calls that he received in the hours before his death. The apartment's building security cameras also were not working. That is very suspicious. You'd think that if he had he was so high profile that he would live in a nice building. Yeah, it was a luxury building. Yeah, and then they would be very observant of when security stuff would go down. Yeah, exactly. It's like even just for like break-ins and thefts, not I I would assume no one would expect to be murdered, but if it was a luxury building, you would think that they kept the security very tight. Yeah. And I mean, it had been down for a couple days, too. So, like, in the buildings that I have, like, worked with, when anything like that goes down, like, we've immediately got, like, a tech out there. Mm -hmm. So the death of Nisman was then transferred to federal judge Emma Pagmahani and special prosecutor Viviana Finn. 
been announced on the February 9th that DNA from a second person was found on a coffee cup in the kitchen sink. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Nisman had already submitted his complaint and the wire tra- tap transcripts to Judge Ariel Lee Joe on the 14th of January. And it was reported that both in the media and in comments to relatives that he felt confident about his performance. He had written a grocery list for the following day. So, like, why would you kill yourself if you are writing a grocery list? And then um, one of the last WhatsApp messages he sent to relatives and friends, which I don't like this seems like counterintuitive to me because they said that everything had been tampered with. But apparently um, he had sent to his friends and family, I'm better than ever and sooner than later the truth prevails. So you're thinking that because everything was apparently tampered with, the killer could have sent that message instead or? Well, they're saying that everything was deleted, but like how, Oh, when did he send that message? Because they said that everything before his death had been deleted. Oh, oh, no. You know what it was? Maybe it was the family. Family, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that, too. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. I've put this Wait together. a second. There's, there's <laughs> another <your> brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone receives the messages. <laughs> they don't just go out into, like, the universe and no one ever reads them. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Wow, we're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm dumb. <laughs> no, I, I'll take that. We're both dumb. <laughs> okay, so Fane announced on... February 3rd, 2015, that Nisman had drafted warrants for the arrest of President Cristina Fernandez de Kitchener and Hector Timmerman, Argentina's foreign minister, before his death. The 26-page document was found in the garbage at his apartment. So, like, why would you throw that out? I mean, this document right here that I've made for, uh, to tell you this story is five pages long and like I don't think I could even throw it in the garbage I love it so much so <laughs> 26 pages is a lot of work yeah it's definitely the the killer he's like oh shoot we have to discard this evidence let's just toss it in the garbage they won't look through that no definitely not it looks like a suicide they won't go through his garbage yeah he hasn't been working on a controversial case for the last 11 years and blamed everyone so we will just leave this alone okay so, in March of 2015, three former Venezuelan government officials stated that Hugo Chavez and Mahmoud Madin Yahad, I'm so sorry to this person, <laughs> allegedly met in 2007 to discuss payments to the Argentine government of Cristina Fernandez de Kitchener in order for Iran to receive Argentine nuclear technology and cessation of work between Argentina and Interpol involving Iranian individuals. Okay. (laughs) Also in March, Argentine's government released a full-page advertisement in the national newspaper, newspaper accusing Alberto Nisman of having attempted to destabilize the country. The advertisement also argued that the country should revive a controversial agreement between them and Iran and the country, uh, the country that is suspected of 
the bombings. So it's like Alberto Nisman is trying to dismantle us. Also, we should get back into bed with Iran, even though we think that they are the number one probability of doing the worst terrorist attack that we have had in this country. That's some very complicated international relations. I know. Um, And here's the bonus little thing that the president did during that time. Um, I'm excited. (laughs) President Cristina Fernandez de Kitchener accused Israel of being responsible for the 1992 bombing of the Israeli embassy in Argentina. This accusation was based on the allegations that Israel was only demanding justice for the EMEA bombing, but not for the embassy attack. So, like... I don't know who this lady thinks that she is. That's so weird. You oh, you don't care about that, so you must have done it. Like yeah, exactly. No lady. This was immediately refuted by the Israeli embassy, which reaffirmed that it does in fact demand justice for both cases. Um like of course, in June 2015, the video a video was released of the crime scene investigation showing police allegedly tampering with evidence by neglecting certain precautionary measures, which, I mean, when you've got 60 people walking through Mm -hmm. a crime scene, obviously they're not. Yeah, just like maybe putting someone's head in the garbage. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I think all the, the Argentine police may need to go back to school for a little bit of forensics update. Um... Like wearing booties to crime scenes and using gloves and not throwing evidence away. Just basic stuff. Um, (laughs) So in December of 2015, Radio Mitre, the Argentinian station, released secret tapes of Hector Timmerman in which he admitted that Iran was responsible for the bombings. On February 26, 2016, the Argentina prosecutor Ricardo Sanez stated Nesman's, er, Nisman's death was a homicide indeed, claiming that the case should be directed to a federal justice. The death was finally considered a homicide by a forensic group in 2018 under Macri's government. The same year Nisman's assistant was accused as the prime suspect of the death. Um, as he provided the suicide weapon or the murder weapon. But what about his defense? <laughs> yeah, that his lip injuries just happened while his body was being transported. So he's currently being prosecuted on conspiracy to commit murder charges by a federal judge. And Fernandez de Kitchener faced unrelated corruption charges. So, I mean... She does do bad things. <laughs> she she does do bad things, yeah. Yeah. She wasn't great, let's say that. Um, on July 18th, 2019, as requested by Israel and the United States, Argentina officially declares Hezbollah a terrorist organization, freezing assets and expelling all members of the organization from the country which is held responsible for the 1994 attack against AMIA. So, in conclusion, 26 years later, we're in the exact same position we were. Oh, no. Nothing, nothing has been solved. Um, 
there are still six Interpol red notices outstanding based on criminal charges in Argentina for the arrest of Iranians and Hezbollah members suspected of participating in the AMIA attack. These include several uh, senior Iranian officials. So, yeah, this was just like a really long story and a lot of rabbit holes and deep dives into something that was never solved. So it's quite sad that we've never gotten justice for any of this. It's hard because it's very confusing. There's so many little things to go down. It just seems so messy and everyone has their own agenda and everyone has their own opinion of who might have done it. And then the uh, maybe the investigator identified who did it and then they had him killed. But no one would know because he had so many different theories. Yeah, like it was just like constantly one thing after another different shots in the dark well i guess it, they weren't shots in the dark they were calculated but it just it le- led to a whole bunch of nothing unfortunately yeah so it's like just going around and around and around and around and nothing gets resolved yeah good job though that was very wild <laughs> yeah right I, like i wish like almost that i could have like sent you this so that like you could like read it and like re- know who everyone's name is cuz it there's so many names and like it's hard especially when it's in a language that's not your first to like remember the differences between everything but it's just so crazy and wild like how many like different little things like pop <laughs> up through this um i did want to mention also that there is a netflix show i didn't get the chance to watch it um, but I definitely want to now. It's called Nisman, the Prosecutor, the President, and the Spy. Interesting. Um, it's a series on Netflix. Um, and then I also got all of this information from Wikipedia, The New Yorker, and The Guardian. Well done, Tegan. That Thank was very you. complicated, and you did a good job. I appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed the story. Yes, I'm going to watch the Netflix show for sure. Yeah, no, me too. I think it's all in... Um, uh-oh. Spanish? Yeah. <laughs> so I think, like, you have, I don't know if there's English um, audio over top, so it's definitely a show that you have to, like, actually sit and pay attention to, because if you don't read what's on the screen, you're not going to know what they're saying. Yeah, it's okay. I watch a lot of, well, I prefer watching international shows, because I like hearing different languages. Um. After we went to Amsterdam, I watched The Simpsons only in Dutch. You are <laughs> so like, weird. I'm going to pick up this language. No problem. So I just watched all of The Simpsons in Dutch. And I was like, yeah, I'm totally going to pick this up. Have I picked up the language? No. I can still say the three things that you've taught me. And that's about it. My, my biggest accomplishment or goal, I'm totally sidetracking us right now, but it's fine. Um, when we were in Zandam, I went into Primark by myself, and I went the entire time with no one speaking English to me. I got wow. through it with, like, my little Dutch that I had. It was very, very difficult trying to find the change rooms in there. I will say that. I kept looking up at all the signs and Google translating everything to see I'm like, nope, that just says pants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyways, enough of my sidetracking. 
Um, Megan, are you ready to tell me your story? Okay, Tegan, are you ready to learn about the S-Bahn killer? Yes. I have just a little introduction to true crime in Germany before we get started. Okay. Because I noticed some trends when doing my research. Germany has a lot of nurse serial killers. Oh. I came across four while doing my research, both men Lots and women. Of angels of death. Yeah. So there was like one in the 80s, one in the 90s, one in the 2000s, and then there was one recently. I don't know if you mm. remember hearing any news about it. Don't know. Yeah, so the recent one was a male nurse and he killed like they think over 90 people. Oh my god. But yeah, so that was one of the things I um <laughs> noticed and then another one I noticed is that a lot of murderers committed suicide quickly after being identified as the killers. <laughs> They're like no prisons not for me. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which I guess that's not as a very surprising trend, but compared to a lot of other murder cases I've heard about, it seemed more common. Yeah. And then the last trend I noticed that there is a lot of dismemberment and a lot of cases where cannibals chopped up their victims and sold them at markets. Oh, right. Because isn't it? It's not illegal in Germany, like if you give consent to having your body eaten to ca- given to cannibals, yes, but um, these were not consented. <laughs> oh, okay. So I got my sources from Wikipedia, obviously. Our favorite. Uh, not that reliable, but it has a lot of great sources linking to other places. A 2019 Ranker.com article by Kat McAuliffe called 13 Disturbing Facts About Nazi Serial Killer Paul Orgazov, a newspaper clipping archive from pressreader.com of the Scottish Daily Mail, and a Daily Beast article in 2017 called A Serial Killer on the Loose in Nazi Berlin. Just a little disclaimer is since this case happened so long ago, some of the victims' names are inconsistent and the time frame is a bit off. Some articles said one thing, some articles said another, so I've kind of had to piece together the story based on what was the most common. So the orders of the victims might be a little bit off, and the names, the, like the last names, there were a couple that were contesting. Apologies to that if I get it wrong. It's okay, I'm sure it won't be as bad as my butchering of every <laughs> single person's name on my story. You're fine. <laughs> Also, disclaimer, I'm not German, and there are some German names in here, so <laughs> beware the pronunciation. Good luck. I trust you more than I trust me. <laughs> yeah. Apologies to the German language. So, Berlin, 1941. As World War II rages on, there is a serial killer prowling the streets of Berlin. So, I would like to introduce you to Paul Orgazov. He was born September 1912 in the town of Muntuin, East Prussia in what is now present-day Poland. His mother was a farm worker who had him as an illegitimate child. He was later adopted when he was 12 years old by a farmer in a different town in what is now Germany. So born in um, what is now Poland, adopted at 12, and moved to Germany. That's a long time to be in whatever foster-type situation that he was in. Probably not a fun time. Well, I think his... 
Like, I think at first his grandfather, so his biological grandfather, so the girl's mother, adopted him. And then I guess this guy on the farm needed another farm worker. So they were like, send me the boy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Paul was a real stand up guy. He joined the Nazi party in 1931 when he was 18 and quickly worked up the ranks of the political party to a squad leader position in the, okay, Sturm of Thailand. <laughs> You're doing great, sweetie. Which is their paramilitary branch. So essentially, this branch did a lot of bodyguard for the Nazi party rallies and was kind of like the armed forces of the party. Oh, fun. Great. Glad that he's in that. Yeah. So Paul Orgazov was hired by the Deutsche Reichsbahn, so the German railway, in 1934 and began working in the Berlin S-Bahn soon after. So the Berlin S-Bahn is their commuter uh, train system. He was apparently very good at his job as a signalman, and a signalman is the guy who essentially controls the movements of the switching of the tracks. Okay. Good to know. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometime during the 1930s, he got married and had two children, and his family moved to a suburb of Berlin called Karlshorst <laughs> in the eastern part of Berlin. So this is obviously before East Berlin, West Berlin, but it's yeah. over to that side. He would often cycle to and from work at the railway, and when coming home at night, he liked to scare women walking al- walking home alone with his bike lamp. I guess he kind of would jump out and point the light at them. <laughs> Why would you do that? I don't Maniac. know. Maniac. He liked scaring women. In August of 1939, just weeks before World War II begins in Europe, he escalated from scaring women to attacking them. Throughout the end of 1939 and throughout 1940, Orgazov violently attacked and sexually assaulted women around the area where he lived and worked. So he was a serial rapist before he was a serial killer. Which, like... Every single time that you hear about serial rapists, they always escalate to murder. Like, it's just one of those things that, like, I feel like should be considered, like, a pre-warning to, like, something greater. I just, it aggravates me so much that even today, like, it's still not considered something that should be of concern. But, like, back in, like, 41, they were probably like, mm, don't do that again. Little slap on the wrist and you probably got off just fine. Mm-hmm. And also, like, peeping toms and stalking, like, it always escalates nearly all the time. So it's it drives me up the wall when you hear about a woman who repeatedly reported her stalker to the police and they're like, well, he doesn't he hasn't actually done anything to you, so we can't do anything about it. And then two yeah. months later, she turns up dead. Yeah, it's yeah. insane. Anyways... <laughs> So the women he preyed on were often young women who lived alone because their husbands were all fighting in the war. He broke into their homes, often nearly killing them with how brutal his attacks were. Oh, no. Yeah, it's really terrible. Um, He attacked 31 women during this time period, but was not caught because Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister for the Nazis, forbid newspapers from publishing any information on these attacks because he thought it would bring down German morale. And he thought if this somehow made its way to the husbands in the war, they would come home and stop fighting because they would be so worried about their wives. And for this reason as well, investigators likely didn't look into them very much because it wasn't 
it wasn't widely broadcast. Yeah, there was no public outcry about it. So they were like, meh, no big deal. Exactly. And also what happened was women weren't scared of being alone and they weren't aware that if you lived in this certain area, you should be locking your doors and windows like extra and taking extra precautions because there's a attacker on the loose, essentially. But all of the victims identified their attacker as wearing a rail worker uniform. So essentially what would happen is he would be on his way home from work and I guess break into someone's home and attack them. I, there was no mention of him stalking his victims, but from what I have learned of his MO, it seems like he might have just followed one home. Yeah, he's like, hmm, like the look of you. Let's see where you live. Mm-hmm. So in three of these attacks, he began his first attempts to murder women, but all three of his stabbing victims during these um, attacks in their homes were able to survive their attempted stabbings. Wow. Um, on October, in October of 1940, as the Nazi bombing of England, aka the Battle of Britain, comes to a close with a Nazi loss, and as Italy invades Greece, Orgazov begins his first murders. Then, only 28 years old, he breaks into the home of 20-year-old Gertrude Ditter and stabs her to death. So this is the first time that him breaking and entering into a woman's home has ended up with a, with the woman murdered. Okay. He attempted to attack a woman waiting at a train station alone, but didn't realize that her brother and husband were actually nearby, and they ran to come to save her and beat him up pretty bad, but he was able to escape. After that incident, he decided to change his MO. He began lurking in empty train cars, waiting for a woman to be alone in a train car before attacking her, sexually assaulting her, and then either strangling her or bludgeoning her to death with a two-inch thick lead telephone cable and dumping her body off the moving train. Oh my god, what the hell? Yeah, really violent. And like, why are you doing that while you're at work? Like, that just doesn't make any sense to me either. Clearly there's going to be a pattern (laughs) when all of these people start missing off of this one train that this guy is working on. Like, I don't know. Well, apparently because there was a war going on and funds were all being pushed for the war effort. There was a lot of safety issues with the S-Bahn. And so a lot of people would maybe fall off a train or they would get caught on the tracks. And so it wasn't completely unusual for people to find a body near the tracks. Oh my god. Yeah, but... (laughs) (laughs) I would never get on a train. (laughs) So it wasn't completely unusual, but it obviously would alarm people if there was a constant pattern. Yeah. Or maybe the the train people are like, oh, I guess this is a really bad area for like women falling off trains. (laughs) There's something that the women's bodies just can't handle. Whoop, off the train they go. (laughs) We're going to have to lower the speed to 20 kilometers an hour because apparently women can't go past that on the train. It's just too much and they go crazy and jump off. Their minds get scrambled. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I love the 1940s. Yeah. Glad we're not in it. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, women were not wary of him because obviously he was wearing a uniform and he was on the train and you had to get check tickets. So when they approached him in an empty train car, it wasn't suspicious. So his MO would be to get onto the train car with a woman and wait until he went to one specific station because between one station and another station on the specific line that he worked, he knew which time was the longest between stations so he would get on 
one station before. And if no one came onto the train track at the station, the next station, as soon as it left, he would attack the woman because he knew he had that uh, like much longer period of time compared to all the other stations. Okay. So Gerda Cargill was attacked and thrown out onto the tracks where her body was found the next day by railway workers. Miraculously, she had survived the brutal attack, but since she had been drinking the day before, police brushed her off saying she had just fallen because she was drunk. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. Because with all of the safety issues of the S-Bahn, they were like, oh, she must have just fallen off while drunk. Yeah. And because she was beaten so severely, she was left with a concussion and couldn't quite remember what What had happened happened to her. All she said to authorities were, a man attacked me and he was in a train uniform. But of course, they were like, oh, you're just drunk. (laughs) Yeah. On November 4th, 1940, Elizabeth Bendorf was waiting for the train home after getting off work. She entered an empty train car along with Paul Orgazov. As the train doors closed, he attacked her, brutally beating her and sexually assaulting her before tossing her off the train. She also survived, but unlike Gerda, she had not been drinking, so police knew this was an attack. Again, she had been beaten so severely she couldn't remember anything about her attacker other than that he was in a train uniform. On December 4th, 1940, he murdered Elfida Frank this way, dumping her body onto the tracks. And then an hour later on his way home, he ran into 19-year-old Ermgard Freis, who he attacked and murdered as well. So it seems like he just has no control and wants to murder as many women as possible. He's just like, give me all of the chances and I will take them all. Yeah. And he was also a little bit sloppy because two of the women survived the attacks and were able to identify that he was a train worker. So during this time in 1940, a citywide blackout was enforced because there was a fear of being bombed by British air raids. So this meant that all the city lights had to be covered, which caused the S-Bahn to have its windows blacked out. No one could see in or out or between the cars, which allowed Orgazov to brutally attack women without being seen. Oh, no. (laughs) The fact that there was a publication ban by the Nazis on his crimes and the fact that all the windows were blacked out allowed him to successfully... He basically had free reign. Yeah, exactly. Over the S-Bahn. Mm-hmm. On December 28th, 1940, Gertrude Seawart was found clinging to life on the railway tracks. Again, brutally beaten and seemingly tossed from a moving train, but sadly she died the next day from her injuries. Oh no. On January 5th, 1941, Hedwig Ebauer was found unconscious along the S-Bahn tracks. Unfortunately, she too passed away due to her injuries in hospital. Hedwig was five months pregnant. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. so sad. On February 11th, 1941, Joanna Voigt, also pregnant, was found on the tracks. She was dead, succumbing to her injuries likely before she was thrown from the train. So at this point, he's murdered seven women. I couldn't find details for all seven murders, but he murdered seven women in all, all in a very similar way and also had attempted to murder three more. So since Goebbels had the story censored from the press, women were not aware of the danger of traveling home at night. However, police were still aware of the murders, obviously, and were investigating them. At first, the investigation was stunted because the Nazis were so racist that they could not believe a racially German person could have committed these crimes. Oh my god. Uh, I just... 
flabbergasted, that's all. <laughs> so luckily two women had survived and they had eyewitnesses that solidified that their attacker was indeed a German man in an S-Bahn uniform. Because police were not able to release inf any information about the case to warn the public, they went undercover. Ooh. Mm -hmm. So by December 1940, so two months before he killed his seventh victim, police were conducting mass interviews of railway workers. They were also posing undercover as train workers and posing as female passengers. So <laughs> both men in drag as female passengers and female police officers. <laughs> oh my god. I know, that's really funny. <gasps> oh my goodness. That would be so scary though to have to um be an undercover woman during that because like you don't have like the radio equipment or whatever that you could like today where you could be like <laughs> i'm about to get murdered like it you really are just like out there on your own yeah exactly and all the windows are blacked out so it's not like you can wave to someone outside or wave to someone in the next car yeah you have to be very alert i guess they would have a handbag uh, gun a <laughs> yeah. first gun their their bright red lipstick gun. Um, the Nazi party, even though they weren't, they were censoring all the information. They they did dispatch some members to protect women while traveling alone. And since he was a Nazi party member, Orgazov actually volunteered to do this himself. Oh, really? Did not see that one coming, did they? There was no mention of him having used this escort service. Oh my gosh having used this service where he was volunteering to escort women it doesn't look like he actually murdered any of them so maybe him playing savior was enough well that kind of reminds me of um ted bundy when he was working with Anne rule and he would be like you know better watch out there's someone out, out on the loose killing a whole bunch of women who look just like you let me walk you to your yeah. car. Like, just, like, wanting to, like, play hero at the same time to, like, make you seem like a good person when you're clearly not. It's very, like, narcissistic. Yeah. Like, I am the savior. So after five months of no more murders and Orgazov, you know, helping women get home safely because he was out murdering them... <laughs> On July 3rd, 1941, just as Germany is beginning its in its uh, extremely successful invasion of the Soviet Union, Orgazov kills his final victim. 35-year-old Frida Kozial was riding the S-Bahn home alone at night when she was approached by Orgazov and attacked, thrown from the moving train only to be found on the tracks the next morning, um, deceased. Oh, no. During the police interviews of Esbon staff, his co-workers had identified Orgazov as saying very misogynistic comments and constantly talking about his fascination with killing and murder. Like, they just figured that out now? They were like, hmm, six women, seven women go get murdered on the train, and they're like, eh, whatever. But the seventh one comes along, and they're like, oh yeah, this guy talks about murdering people a lot. What I think is... Maybe he had been flagged in these interviews. And, oh, I didn't actually see anything about him being interviewed. I wonder if he was. None of my... <laughs> this case is so old that some of the details have been lost. Yeah, I think that 
maybe he was flagged at the beginning in like December when they were doing all these interviews or maybe in February and maybe they were keeping an eye on him while being undercover and he didn't commit any murders so they were like oh maybe this isn't our guy yeah but then when these when the eighth victim was murdered they kind of were like okay now we're going to talk to this guy yeah one of his coworkers specifically mentioned he would often disappear mid-shift, climbing over a railway fence to the rail depot during work hours, uh, which was odd, likely because he was a signalman and supposed to be like in the head office or something or like above the tracks and not actually on the trains. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Also, climbing over the fence is kind of weird, too, because, like, if you work for the railway company, you should probably, like, have access to... Yeah, kind of so stuff. when the police interviewed him about this, he his excuse was that he was having an affair, so he would leave mid-shift and, like, climb over the fence so no one saw him leaving because it, he didn't want the information to get back to his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so after the co-worker kind of tipped the police off about this, the police investigated him, demanding to see his work uniforms. Investigators noticed that all of them had bloodstains on them. And he was arrested on July 12th, 1941, just less than two weeks after he murdered his eighth victim. Didn't take them that long to put it together after after they figured it was him. Well, it's probably... Okay, so number one, it's 1940. Um, so I don't know how detailed investigations went. Um, number two, it's in Nazi Germany. So there's so much other stuff going on. Um he might not be a high priority yeah no understandable and especially with like things not that them not publicizing things too yeah there's no public push for them to solve this case yeah it seemed like they did they did have a good a, a decent investigation though sending officers undercover but like they knew where this guy was killing he would typically do it between those two stations that he knew had the longest time between them. There were so many women that were found on the tracks. They knew it was a railway worker. They definitely could have, like, caught him quicker. Yeah. No, for sure. It's just their bias against who they believe it to be that, I guess, hindered it from getting solved quickly. Okay. Um, so after he was arrested... Um, I don't know how true this is, but like something from out of a movie, he was interrogated in a dark room with like a single light bulb (laughs) over a steel table (laughs) and confronted with a surviving victim. So one of these women came back and was like, excuse me, hello. Remember me? (laughs) I survived. The strength of that woman. Oh my goodness. Props to her. Yeah. So not only was he confronted with a surviving victim, but they showed the skulls of all his other victims to him. Oh my god, that's spooky. After being confronted with all the evidence, he confessed, but he blamed it on a Jewish doctor. He said that he had been treated for an SDI, I think he had been treated for gonorrhea, by a Jewish doctor, and he claimed that the Jewish doctor had made him sexually aggressive. And did they buy that? Please tell me that they didn't. They did not buy that. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So he pled guilty to murdering eight women and attempting to murder six more. 
he was sentenced to death. And he was also kicked out of the Nazi party (laughs) for murder. Did he ever get convicted for all the rapes that he did too? Yeah, he was. I think he pled guilty to 31 um, rapes and attacks. Mm -hmm. And so he was kicked out of the Nazi party for murder and declared an enemy of the people. Two days after his conviction, he was executed. Would you like to guess how? Uh, electric chair? No. Nope. Or, um... Think French Revolution. Guillotine? Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and that was the tale of the Espon killer in Nazi Germany. Oh, wow. Good mm-hmm. job. Thank you. That must have been really hard, because with there being publication bans, there's probably must have been very difficult to actually get information about the case. Yeah, so there wasn't a lot of articles that I saw, but I did see a couple podcasts that covered it. I didn't have time to listen to them, because they were all, like, two-plus hours, and there's a novel uh, written about it. Well, that's very interesting. So I picked it because I like trains number one and also i just watched dunkirk last weekend so i guess world war ii was on my mind uh you were watching my husband harry styles Mm -hmm. harry if you're listening to this i love you (laughs) this week tegan sent me a you confused me so much she texted me an image of a postcard from harry styles and it had my name on it and it was like hey megan you're so golden from Harry Styles. <laughs> I just had to send it to you. I needed you to know that Harry thought that you were golden and that his new music video is dropping. Um, this is not an advertisement for him. We are not being paid by Harry Styles. I really wish we were. But everyone, <laughs> get ready. Tegan has been obsessed with Harry Styles since his One Direction days. So Yeah. It's been a 10-year-long relationship. Um the longest relationship I've ever had. It's going really strong. I'm really... Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> that was the podcast. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, we'll actually be changing this podcast to a Harry Styles um, One Direction um, podcast now against Megan's Will. Uh, we really look forward to all of you listening to that instead, where I just talk about Harry and Megan begrudgingly listens to it. So can't wait to see you next week. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Could you imagine? <laughs> Destination murder this week. Harry Styles seen in L.A. Yeah, it's called Destination Murder, but it's just up- weekly updates on Harry Styles locations. Um. So, Megan... I guess our plan kind of is to end the podcast um, with a little bit of us talking. So if you're not interested to us just like rambling on, then I guess goodbye. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for coming. But we do have to pick our countries. Do you want to do that at the end? Yeah, let's do that at the very end. Okay. So, you know, if you stick around and listen to us talk about Harry Styles for 25 minutes. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It won't be 25 minutes. But if you stick around, you can hear what we're going to talk about next week. Yeah. Don't fast forward. You're yeah. not allowed to. Take that finger no. off the plus 15 seconds button. Stop it. Yeah. Stop it. Don't do we're it. Not okay. It's really not okay. You're going to hurt our feelings. You don't want to see Megan or I cry. It's not a good time. But we figured that we'd kind of do this just to 
lighten the air a little bit at the end. So mm-hmm. you're not leaving this podcast depressed and upset. So I guess the big thing for us right now is uh, Megan's got a tent set up in her backyard and we're going to socially distance see each other for the first time in like four months. So. Yeah, it's been so long. My dad calls it the COVID cozy because it's like a little tent. Think of like a patio tent, I guess, and it has um, mosquito netting around it. So it, it, we can keep it a little bit warm, but airflow can still come through. That was very important for my parents. You know, airflow. We don't want to be sitting in our germs moisture cloud or whatever it's called. <laughs> and we have a fire pit in the middle. It's very cozy. It does get cold. So don't forget to bring your blankets tonight, Tegan. Okay. I will totally do that. I'll get bundled up. I'm so excited. Yeah, we can roast marshmallows if you want. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. There was one thing that we were going to kind of talk about a little bit uh, that's on the more gruesome side. Um, Earlier this week, the 15th homicide in Vancouver took place for the year. Um, Their body was found uh, at Kitts Beach in a recycling bin, so... Uh, the police are asking stratas and buildings if their big blue recycling bins have disappeared that might lead them to um, help solve this case. So definitely check check your strata buildings. Yeah, if you live in a strata, your kits. Well, yeah. it could be anywhere in Vancouver, really, like North Van or Kitsilano. Yeah, or someone trekked it out all the way from Burnaby or something, and they were like, yeah, this is a good dumping ground no one's going to the beach right now Mm -hmm. um i started and finished watching emily in paris last weekend how was that i've (laughs) kept hearing such controversial things like everyone's like her job doesn't make sense her fashion is weird people love her fashion people don't what did you think like it's a good show if you just want to sit and watch and like watch something cute and nice and easy to watch. I saw a couple of criticisms that the show both fetishizes and makes fun of French culture, and I can definitely see those criticisms. Like, I've never been to France or Paris, but I know, like, it's not as romantic as so many American films make it out to be. Like, it's much different in person than it is in... In film and media. Actually, there's, I don't know how true this is, but the Japanese embassy in Paris has a special like counseling unit for Japanese people who come to Paris and like freak out because it's not like the movies. I don't know how true that I is. I hope that it's true. I hope so too. I mean, poor Japanese people who have to get counseling on their vacation to Paris. Yeah, they're like, but, I didn't meet my husband. I didn't meet my wife. This place has let down all of my hopes and dreams yeah but emily in paris is definitely a cute show that is worth watching if you want something easy to watch and i also just liked looking at like shots of paris but yeah her job really doesn't make any sense like she comes to paris to be the american opinion on a new marketing firm that her big marketing firm in the states has recently bought And she's always marketed pharmaceuticals in the U.S., and yet she comes to 
Paris and they're marketing like all these luxury perfumes and luxury brands. And all of a sudden she's this big fashionista who loves fashion and has so much fashion oh commentary. And it's like, you marketed pharmaceuticals. I don't understand. See, like, I really, I do want to watch it because I feel like Lily Collins can do no wrong. Like, I love her. Yeah, I, I typically like all the yeah. stuff she does. I've been watching um, two shows. I've been watching Ratchet um, with Sarah Paulson. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I love Sarah Me Paulson. Me too. It's really cool. I really, like, I'm not one that, like, is like, oh, like, the cinematography was amazing. But, like, all of, like, the colors and stuff in the show, I was just like, mm-hmm. wow. That's, like, such a, like, gorgeous setup. Yeah. Have you seen American Horror Story at all? Um, I've only watched Coven um, because okay. I love Stevie Nicks and Witches. Yes. Um, but... Yeah, she's great. I th- I believe it's the same, like, writer, director or something. Uh, yeah, I could see that. It makes sense. Yeah, and it has a lot of the same characters. Like, the main murderer guy is in um, American Horror Story, and Sarah Paulson is in American Horror Story yeah. as well. So I've been watching that, and I've also been watching Temptation Island. I don't think I've been so angry at a show before in my entire life but so invested um it's horrible it's like actually horrible tv um but it's (laughs) is it anything like love island kind of um it's four couples who go to hawaii oh i know this and it's like oh you better not cheat on each other yeah and oh. let me just tell you that apparently my views on, uh, on men, I, I, sh- I should go to therapy because <laughs> oh, no. this one guy, we, we started watching this show and um, a spoiler alert if you ever want to watch this. But I, there was just one guy. I was like, you know what? He could never like that couple. They're the one that's going to, you know stay strong and get through this um he ended up leaving with the girl that he fell in love with after 14 days of being on the show with her so ended his like six year long relationship moved in with this girl didn't work for the entire year that they were together lived with her she paid for everything and then she they got engaged and then she cheated on him. And now this girl and the ex that this guy left this girl for um, are now friends. But yeah, it's absolutely wild. Yeah, that sounds like a show that would just tip me over the edge and I do not want to watch it. I scream at the TV every single time I watch it. It's just like, what are you doing? It's like um, Love is Blind. Oh my goodness. I had that show had me screaming at the TV. This show is worse. Oh no! Yeah, I definitely do not want. What's watch that it. girl's name from Love Is Blind? Where she's, it's just not gonna work. Jessica. He's twenty four. I'm thirty four. Let's do the math. I'm fifty four. How old are you gonna be? Forty four. Yeah, you're not gonna love me. No, I will. It doesn't matter. Oh my god. The poor, the poor guy. Yeah, he just wanted to find his person. Any new podcasts or anything that you've listened to recently? 
Um, yeah, this one. <laughs> I felt so narcissistic. I probably listened to the first episode like five times. I was like, huh. I Me actually too. like the sound of my voice. <laughs> I am very surprised. I thought I would hate the sound of my own voice, but it's not that yeah, bad. Yeah, I know. Every other podcast that I've listened to, they're all like, Ugh, I could never listen to our recording. Like, I just can't stand like listening to me. I'm like, give me more. Let me go on for hours. <laughs> Should we pull our new country? I was just going to say, I think let, we shall. Okay, Tegan, are you ready? I'm going to randomly generate your country. Where am I going to uh, this week, Megan? Tegan, you are going to South Africa. Ooh. I don't know a lot about South Africa. Okay. Me? I am going to randomly generate my number. Oh, I am the <laughs> Netherlands. <laughs> Yay! I was hoping for that one. Oh, wow. I'm very jealous. <laughs> I swear I did not rig this for people listening. I did not rig this. So you've got South Africa. I've got the Netherlands. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm very jealous. <laughs> I guess with that, I guess we'll see you next week. Like, comment, subscribe. As per usual. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Um, share us with your friends, your mom, your dog, your cousins, your aunt, your uncle, your estranged family members who live on the other side of the world. No, but like we just, we really appreciate all the support and everything that we've gotten so far. And... Um, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and again, they're not coming back. <laughs>